Good evening and welcome. Um, I am Kinkini Banerjee and I'm standing in for the first five minutes um, on behalf of the um, chair of the board HR committee, uh, Trustee Jet Chapman, while she joins. So I want to open this meeting, welcome all and Madam Clerk. Trust yes, Trustee Banerjee. Here. It's Trustee Bouquet. Here. <clears throat> Trustee Chapman is here. She's logging on. Oh, there she is here. Trustee yeah, Chapman. I'm, I'm here on my phone right now. So here. <laughs> I'm trying to log on so I can actually see you all. And Trustee Steen. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you, Rana. Do we have any public uh, requests for public comments? No public comment. All right. So then moving on, um, the first item on our agenda is the approval of the minutes from our October meeting. Uh, may I have a motion to approve the minutes from the October 19th HR committee meeting? So moved. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Madam Chair, roll please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. And Trustee Esteen. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. And now we'll move on to our agenda. And I'm going to invite our uh, Chief Human Resource Officer, Lorna Jones, to uh, move in with item uh, B, which is our HR metrics. And I believe it's Lynn Velasquez who's going to be doing it. But Lorna, do you speak at the top of the meeting too? Or we all, we all know Lynn. So. Go yes. ahead, Lynn. Oh, Lynn, you're on mute. Can the screen be seen, please? Yes. 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 Thank you. Everybody can see the screen. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year. Um, we'll start off with the time to fill metrics. As you can see here, we ticked up from the uh, first quarter. Uh, to 88.86 days. Part of the, the reasoning behind this is uh, we had some staffing issues within the recruitment team, uh, people taking bereavement, bereavement leave, um, family medical leave, uh, and COVID uh, hit us again. Uh, in addition to that, we had some hard to fill uh, positions that we finally were able to uh, procure uh, in the areas of manager, director, um, MPs, PAs, physicians, and dentists. Uh, so that kind of impacted our metric here for uh, the quarter from August 1st, uh, from, from October 1st through December 31st. So what I did, I took one of the FTEs from the internal mobility team, reassigned them to the recruitment team to try to balance out the portfolio uh, requisition load. Uh, and that seemed to help. And for our time to onboard, uh, we were experiencing some issues there with, I think, um, candidates wanting to take vacations uh, before they started. So that kind of created a, a delay. Uh, we we're also having some issues with people becoming compliant with the employee health screenings. And so working with the coordinator team, I made sure that if they had those issues, to escalate it to me so we can uh, mitigate them. 
So as you can see here, we did go down from 39.95 days to 33.93 days. And at the end, uh, I think for the second quarter, we were able to fill 514 requisitions. That's including the internal and uh, the transfers in addition to external uh, hires. So do you have any questions on these two metrics? Just one quick question. I apologize if this is overly simplistic. How does a requisition compare to an FTE or a real person? Is it one for one? Is it just a different terminology? Uh, yeah, it is one for one. It, it, regardless of the FTE uh, metric, could be a 0 0.06, of uh, 1.0, et cetera. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. And Lynn, I'm presuming that the, you know, the diff between Q1 and Q2 is also because October to December's holiday season. Yes, uh, it does slow but down. Also, it, you must be seeing this difference between Q1, Q2, not just for this. Yes, uh, in, during the uh, Q2, we do see a slowdown in the number of applications uh, in, in our queue. And it slows down right before Thanksgiving. And it really doesn't pick up until about the second week of January. We've been tracking that, and, it, and it's pretty true. Ms. Velasquez, this is Taft Duquette. Uh, I, yes. uh, I, I see those numbers. Thanks for reporting this data. I presume these are aggregate numbers. Have you noticed identified any trends within by job title? For example, are physicians longer to fill than a nursing? So uh, are there variants by classification? And that oh, there is, yes. There is. Physicians take longer. And when we do get them, they have to go through the credentialing process, which can take 90 days. Uh, so uh, hopefully, I think um, Dr. Alka Swarin is looking at uh, the onboarding piece and medical staff. And that's something we want to uh, partner uh, with her on to see if we can reduce that time. In a future report, that might be kind of interesting to see how that breaks out you know, by, by big, big classifications, you know, we're a nursing shop. We have so many nurses. So that's probably a big, big, yes. big piece. but by seeing by non-nursing staff, that might be an interesting piece of data for us too. Uh, right. Uh, yes. I know within nursing also, we look at the specialties like OR and step-down units, et cetera, because those are also hard to fill. So um, I do have one introduction and I'm so sorry I didn't do it. Uh, I have been able to uh, backfill uh, the manager position within talent management. And so Justin Lewis, who is on the call, uh, will be looking at position manager, which is our source of truth for these metrics, and looking at if we can procure um, better reporting uh, in terms of uh, the uh, time to fill, time to onboard, and see if we can drill down to those classifications that you mentioned, Dr. Kett. Thank you. You're welcome. Lynn, thank you for the introduction. I just wanted to say hello. Uh, very happy to be here and um, look, very nice to meet oh. all of you. Welcome, Just Justin. So glad you chose AHS. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Congratulations. I'm really, I'm really glad that he's here. So. <laughs> I have one question. Yeah, just as follow-up regarding uh, Dr. Bouquet's question, where does that show up? Is that in the for the physicians, is that uh, extra 90 days in the time to onboard employees or does that show up in the previous? Um, I think it's part of the onboarding process. It just, you know, it is what it is when we when we look at it. Um, 
So, you know, as we look at these 88.86 days, um, it's a percentage of that. So it is an aggregate. So it averages out, if that makes sense. I think if we just look at the position uh, metric only, uh, you could probably clearly see where it takes a lot longer to uh, onboard a position into AHS. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it'd be great to see that with the raw data, like the total number of each position, because then you know, like this average doesn't look completely inflated. Uh, right. So I imagine there are not that many physicians. Right. You're you're correct. So Justin, you have a project. That is your project is to look at this. Okay. Thank Noted. you. Noted. All right. Uh, any more questions on this slide? Okay, we can move on to the next one. Uh, the residents of Alameda County that really hasn't moved were at about 60%, uh, which is a good take rate when you're looking at uh, hiring from our community. Um, the workers' compensation, uh, we did have an uptick, uh, but as you read here, um, the beta is going to be looking for accuracy uh, on this particular metric. And the number of workers' compensation injuries uh, did go down by two. Um, but what I do want to note and bring to your attention is we finally were able to uh, pilot a safe patient handling program in Alameda Hospital. So that has been the change since the last time that we met. So I find that very exciting. Any questions on these metrics here? Is, is that... Um... The new program is uh, across the hospitals, and we were just adding it to our last one, or is that a pilot at that hospital? It, it's a pilot right now, is my understanding. Okay. At Alameda Hospital. So hopefully, if it is successful and they can tweak it, uh, it will be replicated across the campuses. Okay. okay. Any other questions on this? Ms. Velasquez, are there benchmarking data on these for an organization with 5,400 employees? Where does 4.58 and number of work uh, and number of injuries starting from? Where do we sit relative to our industry? Um, I think that would be a question for uh, Greg Stevens. Uh, he's in charge of this program, okay. and I can certainly we can bin this and bring it back uh, to uh, the uh, BOT at the next meeting. But I think that is a very valid question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Anything further on the on the HR dashboard in regard to these metrics? Is that benchmark score that you have, is the industry benchmark, I presumed? In the workers' compensation? That column for benchmark, I, I figured was like our target goal, the industry benchmark, and then what our thing is. Is that right? Uh, normally, my um, my experience has been that these benchmarks are based on uh, the relative size of an organization, uh, and so that is what the third party administrator uh, would use uh, in terms of helping us uh, uh, kind of calibrate our injury rate and our lost day rates. But I think to Dr. Paquette's point, uh, he would want more information on that. Okay. I mean, I mean, that's sort of good. I mean, if you're saying that's the industry benchmark, because that's what the column says. I didn't know yeah. if we were 
you know, on some of our parameters, we benchmark against ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's when I know whether this is an industry benchmark or whether we're benchmarking against ourselves from prior. I can't remember what this data was prior year. Right. Generally speaking, um, you know, like I said, my experience has been when you're dealing with a third party administrator like Beta, they're going to be using uh, benchmarks that for our for our size of, of an organization. So we can bring that back to be more on point. Sure. I just wanted to interject that you are accurate, Lynn. It is benchmarked against organizations of like size, like industry by Beta. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, here's our favorite uh, metrics. And Karen, please chime in to help me out with the turnover rate. Um, back in July, we decided to change our metric from 11 point, um, I think it was 11.09 uh, to 17%, which is more in line with the national average. Um, and as you can see here, uh, it does change the, um, uh, the outcomes for the first and second quarter of this year. So if you look at the organizational-wide uh, turnover rate, uh, you could see that annualized is at 11.62, quarterly is at 2.90, and our term count uh, during this time was 151. And this is for the quarter from October 1st through December 31st. Um, and if you look at the first year, uh, I think these are better numbers for us uh, compared to how our benchmarking was done prior to this. So in the first year, we have come down from 30.62 on an annualized uh, metric uh, down to 25%. Quarterly is down to 6.38. Uh, that's down from the prior quarter of 7.65. Uh, and then the second year that has also come down from 17.87, I hope I'm looking at this correctly, uh, down to 13.77. Um, and if you look at the nursing uh, metrics, uh, it's also trending downward, which is good, uh, from 15.24 to 11.59. And then the first year came down from 42% down to 26 and the second year is down from 23 down to 8.51. A uh, question about how this relates to the overall number of staff. I feel like I can remember in a previous discussion that the FTE count is flat year over year. Is that correct? Well, I think we use, do, don't we use actual head count, Karen, in the calculation? Yeah, um, we're looking at beginning head count, uh, terminations divided by beginning headcount. Right. So it's not done by FTEs, trustee esteem. Okay. So it's headcount to headcount. It's, it's headcount, yes. Mm -hmm. How does this relate to the total number of staff? So Is the uh -huh. the first one you're looking at uh, on the very top, the annual turnover at the system level, uh, that is uh, where we are at currently, right there. That's the total number of terminations. Yes, for this quarter, it was 151. Yeah, how does that relate to the staff that are employed uh, overall quarter by quarter and the nursing staff employed quarter by quarter? Just to see like, you know, is this a trend, but we still have the same number of staff employed or is this a trend and we have a different denominator? 
Well, we have a different metric to go by in terms of 17% versus 11.09. Uh, if you remember that those numbers, I mean, our turnover rate looked just horrendous, but it wasn't sustainable and we weren't even close to 11.09. So I think that the right metric that we chose was 17%, which is a national average. Uh, so if you look at our quarterly uh, turnover rate, 2.90, I think that is very good. Um, I guess my it, question is more about like, because we aren't also seeing how many people were hired in the interim. So like, did we lose a bunch of people and then we just have less people to lose? Or did we replace those folks? You know, it, so I'm trying yeah. to figure out where we are as a baseline in total staff count. Mm -hmm. I know when we look at the BI turnover uh, report, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, it does show the number of terminations, right? And the number of people we hired. Yeah, so this uh, turnover rate is um, looking at the 151 terminations and it's, and it's divided by the head count at the beginning of the quarter. So I'm just making up a number, it's like 5,300. Um, and then we just do that each quarter. So we don't add in the new hires in our calculation, but sometimes turnover can be calculated adding in the new hires, but we don't do that right now. We take the beginning headcount for the quarter, number of terminations, and uh, divide the terms by the headcount. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess what we could show you next time is to actually pull up the BI report on the turnover and actually show you with the numbers. Sometimes it is close where it's like a revolving door. You know, the number of people that you're hiring for, we're losing that many people. And when I looked at the turnover report yesterday, uh, I think we're doing a little bit of a better job in terms of retention that it's it's not exactly one for one, but I, I think we can should continue on our um, our focus on retention right now. And it seems like it's getting some traction. Thank you. I think that I do those numbers next time if you would like. I would appreciate that a great deal. Retention is exactly what I was hoping to see with the overall mm -hmm. generators. Okay. Same here. Uh, I mean, with the benchmark of like 14.7, especially for nursing, to have like 42.2% um, in the first year, you know, in our Q1 and then 26, even by benchmarks, we know that there's a big turnover of nurses, but relatively. Uh, seems really high in the um, first year. Right. Um, so we'll add to the dashboard for the next meeting uh, the number of hires within the quarter versus the number of terms in addition to this information that we already have. Okay, good. All right. Well, like I said, we're doing much better. <laughs> okay. Uh, Karen, if, if you can take us through the exit interview dashboard. Yep, this is a print screen. This is a work in progress. We um, hope to launch this next month. Um, so we're still just validating a little bit. But um, this is for the year 2022. Um, these are the top reasons for leaving. Um, we've had 200. Oh, so I, I have to back up a second. Sorry. Um, we have an outside company that's performing exit interviews for our employees that leave the organization. We have about 43 to 45% of our people, our separated employees are responding to the exit interviews. So this is their information that they've responded to the exit interviewing company. 
Um, so in this instance, um, for the year, it's showing that we had 287 uh, interviews conducted. The average years of employment was 4.5. So these are not first year. They're about almost five years. Um, this top box is about the reasons for leaving. And uh, this big blue here is employees saying they want a better work-life balance. Um, and that's kind of a new category to jump to the top. I don't think it's been, um, that hasn't been one of the top reasons. It's been a reason that's been listed, but not as much as it is right now, um, the higher, higher percentage. Um, this down here is the organizational rating. So what employees, how employees that have left rate the organization. Um, and then we don't have the actual dashboard. This is just a print screen, um, but we also have other pieces that how would you rate your manager? How would you rate your job? And we have two versions of this dashboard that we're building. And one of them, if you were to click on this blue section, for instance, it would give you all of the comments that the employees made. Um, and the good and the bad is that they call out people's names. So they say, Karen Skillman did X, Y, Z. Um, and so we don't want all the managers to read all the comments about other managers. So we have made a confidential version, which HR and our HR business partners and our labor consultants can work with a manager and pull up the comments made about Karen Skillman and, and counsel her if that's what's needed. Um, you know, and the regular uh, employees who don't have the confidential version, they can't drill down to the data. They can just kind of see um, the, the totals. Uh, and so we are going to be working with our HR business partners to help managers like see the confidential data. Um, and then down the left side are filters. So if somebody's just from Alameda Hospital and they only want to see the figures for Alameda Hospital, so they can filter by location, by department or by union code even. Um, so this will be rolling out to um, our leaders, um, hopefully at the beginning of February. Mm -hmm. Right. And we plan to marry this up with the um, uh, business intelligence uh, turnover report. Uh, that's going to be very key, as I stated previously in a few meetings, uh, that with the turnover um, uh, data and the exit interview dashboard, that it will allow the um, uh, leaders to help identify at least maybe one or two departments that are really outliers in this regard and to create some meaningful interventions uh, to really have that, um, uh, I think, difficult conversation uh, with their managers to see if what they need in terms of helping uh, with retention or any other di uh, different strategies that uh, we can employ to kind of blunt the revolving door aspect in some of these uh, departments. I think that would be a great drill down idea. Would Would you guys mind going back one slide? And I just want to make sure I sure. think I'm doing a little bit of math correctly. Okay. So, so uh, what I see here on the top, the annual system turnover and overall annual overall overall annualized the termination count was 151. Does everyone see that? Yes. And we dropped down to nursing. The termination count in that same column was 43. That's correct. So it looks like the minority of turnover is actually from nursing, only uh, 48, 150, like 28%, 30% or so. So I think that's great to drill down. Where's that other 72% coming from by by grouping? Because uh, 
nurses are only uh, 28% of all our turnover. I, for some reason, I thought it was going to be higher. So that's super, that's very interesting. Do we have it broken down by those other groups? And I, Lynn, you were just commenting, that's what I guess we're going to try to do. So maybe the answer is no. Um, um, actually, we can, in the BI turnover report, we actually can uh, drill down by, by groups, um, which is very helpful. Uh, and I think this is when we have the uh, business intelligence report done on the exit interview. It really is going to tell a story uh, about what may be happening within that department. Yeah, I think that's great. Finding is there a turnover hotspot in our organization would be yes. would be a yes. great question. Yes, but I will say uh, that our new CNO is doing a great job uh, in terms of I think. Um, making it a focus uh, for her division of nursing to really look at retention. So I think I think some kudos goes to Roe and I think she's on this call tonight, so. Thank you, Roe, and good point, Taft, because sometimes when you see the percentage, it needs to be done in a frame of reference where I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes, but thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. So looking at this slide, I just want to, let's go back to that slide. I just okay. wanted to make sure that I understand what it is, um, Lynn. So the, the number of interviews, the 287 is about 50% of those that have actually left. And, right, that's correct. Okay, and then out of that 50%, if you look at the reason for leaving, it looks like work-life balance and career is like 66%. That, that's correct. Of the folks. And when I, when I look at some of the... Um, uh, publications on this uh, yesterday to look at the trends and really career and work-life balance is like one of the, of the top reasons why employees leave an organization. And I think this was really highlighted during COVID. People kind of took stock mm -hmm. of their life and said, you know, I really need to make a change here. Um, and that's what they're doing. Now, the inflation uh, that is occurring, and, and you can see it in the tech sector where they are laying off people, um, I don't know if that's gonna change the dynamic or not. I think that hybrid work is here to stay. Uh, if you, know, you talk to CEOs of other industries or within healthcare, you're finding that uh, the, um, uh, candidate market is still demanding some type of hybrid. Now in hospital systems where you have first responders or people that have to be by the bedside, certainly we can't do that. Uh, but uh, as I stated before, one of the second reasons why people are leaving, um, I think that this was highlighted last year was due to hours, schedules and hours. Um, and because 85% of our employee population is uh, union represented, I think that's something that when it comes to the collective bargaining agreement negotiations, maybe that's something we can look at. But with that said, you know, alternative work weeks have to be voted on under the uh, state of California regulations. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Lorna, uh, but they have to vote that in. And so if it's not voted in, like let's say the emergency department that doesn't have 12-hour shifts right now or on an alternative work week, uh, they will remain in their status quo. So that's just an example. And that's and that's what I was actually thinking is that, it, you know, like you said, most uh, 
most employees now want some sort of hybrid schedule and it's difficult to do in our healthcare system unless you look at something like alternative work weeks, you know, a 980 or 410 or, uh, you know, 312 or something like that. It's going to be difficult to do. But then on the other hand, because we're so short staffed, you're going to have increased costs in overtime if you do that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like a no-win situation. Right. And I know that one of our um, uh, objectives, at least when you look at our sustainability pillar is to reduce the need or reliance on uh, contingent workforce or travelers and registry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the the focus on retention even, even becomes more important so that you can get to a more of a balanced approach and you're not so reliant on, on, on the contingent workforce, uh, but you're right. Um, and if you look at the, the work-life balance, that's a huge part of the pie. It's at what, uh, 53.42%. The second one is, I believe, a career. Uh, So as you know, we're trying to do uh, different things uh, within Alameda Health System, like uh, the tuition reimbursement, which we'll show you a little bit later on how that's uh, gaining traction. uh, the mentoring program, uh, I know I, I'm placing a lot of emphasis on trying to promote from within uh, the organization uh, and looking at whether or not I can establish an um, interim promotional opportunity for people uh, so that they can uh, have an opportunity for six months if they meet certain criteria. And we can input like key performance indicators. Um, and see how they do to see if they we can place them within the organization and not always source uh, externally. So those That's are some great. thoughts that we have. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. I love that idea, Lynn. The the interim promotion. I that sounds fabulous to me. Uh, just a question about how that is rolling out. Does it come with like the coaching that we'd heard about before and? the training that can help support people to be successful mm-hmm. in the role? And yeah. is their past role protected in some ways so that if it doesn't work out, they can go back to their old position? I think that those uh, parameters have to be worked out. Um, I discovered that we do have kind of a void in terms of policy and procedures, like on reclassifications. Uh, so let's say I have, like I t- took this person from the internal mobility group, right? and I put him into recruitment. Uh, This person had the ambition, really want to do it. They're doing a fabulous job. Why wouldn't I reclassify them? Uh, So we need a procedure for that. But on the interim uh, promotion, I have tapped Arlene Gomez of uh, the Director of Organizational Learning and uh, Effectiveness to help me carve out a policy and procedure on this very topic. Uh, and then we'll have to put it before the ELT. But I, I think that um, uh, barring any kind of uh, major edits that it should go through. But I really do believe we need some something more formal uh, to help with this. Because if it doesn't work out, we should be able to hold that position and allow them to a trip back. And I've seen that in other uh, organizations. Right. How soon do you think this interim process will work or is it already being rolled out? 
I'm kind of doing it uh, informally uh, as, um, you know, I, I get uh, contacted by leadership saying they have this fabulous person over here. They have some structural issues and they really need to retain them. Can we do something? And so informally, I think I have done it in two different areas uh, where we have um, created like an interim promotional opportunity for people. So I always like to experiment and uh, try to get there and that, that helps me formulate a more formal program. I love it. Thank you. Any other questions on the exit interview dashboard? Lynn, I was just going to add that some of our union contracts do address that, like somebody going into higher classification and returning to their former position. So some of some of our contracts do address that just for the good of the group. Okay, thank you. All right, okay. next slide. Am I, I'm, I guess I will take it from here. This is just revisiting. I, we kind of wanted to do a year in review for you and we'll be doing it into different modalities, um, including our volunteer services and health path. But this is just re-engaging um, re the group about our strategic plan and the strategic plans that we've already engaged um, HR with leading. And um, it's a multifaceted group. It's myself, Lynn, Arlene Gomez, and some individual contributors from our team that are helping us um, develop our strategic plans, our action plans. And um, next slide. Again, these two um, areas, the staff and physician experience pillar are our main focus, of course, um, dealing with um, people operations. And these are some of the um, action plans that we are already developing and working on. We've actually presented um, some of our action plans to ELT in a, um, one of our ELT meetings a few months ago um, because we had already started the action planning um, efforts um, using Smartsheets. Next, next slide, please. So overall, our expected, our expected outcomes is to ingrain the work standards um, surrounding equity, diversity, and inclusion in our day-to-day -day operations. Um, we do have a lofty goal of 100% participation in the anti-racism and structural competency and equity explicit training. Um, we also have, uh, are working on developing a leadership academy program for leaders, but also individual contributors. As you know, we have a leader um, leadership academy. We are looking at tweaking that leadership academy to be more um, you know, targeted towards physicians. And on the alternative side, we're looking at individual contributors and, and doing um, some targeted learning and um, a leadership development for individual contributors. Um, our goal overall is to train 100% of identified operational physician leaders. Of course, we um, need to increase and encourage developmental opportunities with our staff. Um, there are different initiatives throughout the organization, as you know, but the main focus for HR is through our organization and learning effectiveness department. Um, but we've done one-offs throughout the years, and I will show you in the following slide some of those trainings that we've done with outside, outside trainers and facilitators. But we want to increase the number of trainings, forums provided, and define participation expectations. Um, we, we also have a targeted goal of providing 100% participation for crucial conversations to our leadership group. 
increase the number of certifications and qualifications achieved per year. So I'll stop right there, just say, does anybody have any questions so far? Some of this, like I said, is rehashing our strategic action planning that's going on right now. All right, so um, program overview, as you know, um, professional development, um, we have Leadership Academy, we um, have career coaching, um, tuition reimbursement was launched in July of 2021. The HS mentorship program was launched by Olay in the, the fall of 2022. Um, we, this past year, did emotional intelligence training um, throughout the organization or for anybody that um, requested it. We did target areas that had a defined need. Um, we also did DEI training. We had implicit bias training through Elsevier and also um, uh, we also offered some one-on-one -on -one trainings um, through our OLA department, and we have two individuals in particular that are um, that have a lot of DEI experience. And um, we also launched our affinity groups, um, and so we currently have four groups, and um, they are all meeting on a monthly basis. Uh, we did have a, a request for a fifth group um, just last week, and so that group will be launching hopefully soon, it's for social workers. Um, and we've been doing individual consulting. So some of you may be familiar that we've reached out to one particular campus that needed help um, with doing some assessment and issue resolution and development of core training targeted to their issues and concerns. Um, and we, we've done that. We've also done it with individual departments, so at the department level. And this is really um, a, you know, a united, program that is with Olay, the labor relations consultant and the HRBP um, to kind of come in and do an assessment, you know, through a survey, like a pulse survey. And to, from the survey results, um, we discern what is needed in the department, whether it's training, education, increased collaboration and communication through rounding or having regular staff meetings. And so we work with departments on an individual basis to um, identify issues and concerns. Um, just to recap, I shared in October the net promoter score that we launched in October of 2022. Um, we're going to be launching another net promoter score in uh, the next quarter. Um, we did not think that we really got um, as many responses as we need to come up with a core metric to measure. So we're going to be relaunching the net promoter score for both physicians and staff. Um, the employee engagement survey, um, you may remember from prior presentations, we were targeting January. However, a culture safety survey, which historically launches in February, is going to be, is already underway right now. And so we decided it may be uh, a little too much for employees to answer both surveys. So we moved the um, employee engagement survey and employee satisfaction survey, I use both interchangeably, to the fall of 2023. And um, if you recall, historically, that was when it was it was done in prior years. Next slide, please. I have one question. Sure. Um, if you can go back uh, to the slide, the consulting uh, that you're doing, is that also tied to the, you know, uh, I know that Darshan has spoken about the cultural survey uh, of action plans that folks had. So does that integrate some of that or those action plans are separate from some of the pain points that HR is dealing, is uh, building capacity for? 
So we actually crosswalk the culture of safety survey when we go in to do an assessment. So before we run the pulse survey for the department or for the facility, as I, as I spoke earlier, we, um, we will get the results for um, that particular unit, whether it be many several units or one department. And so um, basically the results so far, we, we see the same results that came out in the culture of safety survey, right? So it will be the same things. There may be added um, issues and concerns relative to whatever led us to the engagement with the department leader or the leader for the facility. Um, but their, their major themes are always, they coincide with the um, culture of safety survey. Um, we're currently working um, with uh, one division right now um, and we had their action plans from last year. And what we found was they had a change in leader, a change in about, I don't know, maybe 20% of their management group as well. And so some of their action plans didn't end up being totally implemented, they started, they fell off maybe in the third quarter of, you know, finalizing. So part of our, um, you know, assessment and our plan is to re-engage them to do those things they didn't do last year. And so we started that engagement in September. So they're going into this next culture of safety survey, um, you know, in a better place. So we're hoping and we're going to be, you know, following to see if there's been an uptick in their culture safety results, right? Because if we've done more targeted training, we've been rounding with them, the managers have been developed and received additional training, um, we should see a market improvement in uh, at least some of those, uh, some of those uh, key areas that were in their action plan. Thank you. I have a question about the, the cultural improvement and it sounds like there's a lot of different trainings that are happening um, and a SEVI I know is probably online and there's other trainings you said were happening one-on-one -on -one and department by department. Is there any training that is gonna take place that is uh, in-person that's maybe like system-wide that just kind of rolls down from every every department? One time? Not, I don't have anything concrete yet, trustee is seen. I will tell you that there is a desire to have some system-wide initiatives um, but we do not have um, a vendor or an outside party um, key partner identified yet, but we are in the process. So I will tell you that we have some um, key learnings that have to be done and they have to be in person um, for different facilities. Um, some of it is agreement with the union that we would do this training at this facility. And part of the problem was during the pandemic, most of these outside consulting groups were doing virtual training and they weren't coming on site, definitely not to hospitals. Um, they weren't coming on site. It was very difficult to find or ascertain those resources. So now that we think we're in a better place overall, I do think we'll be able to find those resources. So I should have an update for you in April. That's great. Have any of our partners in labor or outside partners that have these agreements and expectations been pressuring us to, to move it quickly or is everybody pretty understanding? They're all very understanding. As you know, our biggest union um, with the most contract is SEIU 10 to 1. And they are very well aware of what our um, predicament is with finding a vendor. Um, I think also, um, you know, SEIU 10 to 1 has um, been looking for similar resources in this space. So they have, they've identified that it's very hard to obtain them as well as uh, SEIU UHW. So 
I think everyone knows that we are working towards that. Um, and so, no, we have not had any issue or concern raised by the unions. That's great. Thank you. Ms. Jones, this is a great program. Uh, if you'll go back right to that one, back one slide, if you don't mind. Great program overview. It gives us a great feel for what, what we're trying to accomplish. Um, I'm going to put on a financial hat here. Can you talk to me about anticipated over total program uh, cost for, for the, the enumerated programs here? Do we, and I guess my question is, as we manage it, are these line items? How are the projections? And then I'm going to ask a horrible question. How do we determine the ROI of any particular one of these investments? Sure. So uh, answer to your first question is most of these things that are on this list, uh, with, the acceptance, with the exception of career coaching through growth space. Now we do career coaching internally through Olay, right? Um, but we also have this platform and it's an annual line item on our budget. And it's 50 people get identified. They well, they apply and they get identified to participate in the program. Um, the tuition reimbursement, you know, um, new benefit. Um, we've had relatively hardly any traction in this area, so it is a line item, right? It's going to cost some money, but so far this was a you know a measurement year. Um, we don't have a huge participation level, so we're going to be looking to tweak that program. But so I would say emotional intelligence, um, the career coaching platform, um, and when we do the employee engagement survey, those are all line items on the budget. Most of the other items are things that we do internally. Um, and so it's my our internal resources. And as far as the ROI, well, well, we usually try to get a barometer or a benchmark metric, right, after participation. So for instance, um, the career coaching through growth space this year was in its, you know, first year. So we got feedback through surveys and about, uh, you know, how people felt at the end of the program as, as well as in the middle of the program. Um, we also can, you know, um, track and trend those individuals that either promoted after finishing the program, because it is an executive coaching platform, right? Yeah. Um, and so we don't have any um, return on investment yet, but we do think that we have a benchmark. And after we run it this February and have at least, um, you know, our mid, you know, um, survey results from the participants, we can come up with ROI measurements, right? Like yeah, that'd be cool. Like retention at two years or three years or right. whatever. Yeah. Right. How, how um, much? How much does uh, that cohort of fifty? Uh, again. Uh, I'm a super big fan of career coaching. I want to emphasize that. What What is the uh, individual cost for one of the uh, uh, to go through a career coaching ballpark? Uh, is this a ten thousand dollar investment? A one thousand? So it is roughly. It's less than a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, that's a ballpark. So about right. about two thousand per of uh, for the fifty. Got it. Okay, that and that's for that. Yeah, and just to let you know, that's not even the ballpark if you were to go get an executive coach one-on-one -on -one to just go hire one through LinkedIn or through another resource. Um, a lot of the coaches, you know, they cost anywhere from $200 an hour to over 500 or they have a, a minimum of $5,000, uh, you know, retainer. Yeah. So it is a good benefit because we're using an outside vendor. That's, that's all they do. And yep. so- it's pretty cost effective. And we did put it out to market just so you know, and we looked at two other vendors as well before we chose this vendor. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. 
So again, this is our OLA um, uh, slides and unfortunately Arlene could not be here today. So I'd be happy to answer most of your questions. Um, as you know, the Leadership Academy went virtual. These were the four cohorts in 2022. We are looking to launch very similar cohorts in 2023 and then adding, of course, the individual contributor um, Leadership Academy that we're still working on. And we'll have a more defined um, you know, date of when that will be launched probably by our April meeting. Um, Again, the curriculum facilitated leadership. There's tons of skill labs you know, across the continuum for healthcare leaders. Um, there's also the professional development component, um, which is growth mindset, emotional intelligence, and then the DEI training. Next slide. We have um, several elective classes, um, as you may be aware, and we have several offered through Elsevier, our LMS system active listening, feedback, feed forward, growth mindset, implicit bias, leadership essentials, SBAR, meeting effectiveness with Zoom. Um, we have position manager training that is done, um, I believe it's monthly. Um, anybody correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it you can apply, you can sign up for it through Elsevier and then the training is done on a regular basis. Um, and of course we have self-placed classes that has been opened up to all of our um, HS employees that they can participate in on their leisure or whenever they'd like. Again, we, we instituted a growth space last year, um, really big win, had really good feedback. Um, we also negotiated a tailor model for AHS that um, was really just about career coaching um, with no other elements. So, and it also gave a lot of um, discretion to the individual employee to discern what they wanted to get out of the sessions. Sometimes people wanted, hey, can you help me do a career path? Other times they wanted an individual development plan. Um, so it, it really had really good feedback and I'd be happy to share some of that feedback again at our next meeting. Um, we've done phased in one-to-one -one coaching programs. Um, pilot, uh, we did a survey of participants, participants, excuse me, um, and everyone got to participate in at least five sessions. And for those individuals who didn't get to finish their five sessions, we were able to repurpose any of their missed sessions to other employees that were in the same cohort so um, that none were missed or um, we didn't lose any, any money per se on the left anything on the table. That next cohort is gonna launch in February of 2023. Again, tuition reimbursement, as you know, um, you know, this current state is full-time unrepresented staff or unionized staff who cannot participate in the SCIU UHW Ed Fund. The main purpose of this is that if they participate in the Ed Fund, they have tuition reimburse reimbursement through the Ed Fund, and they also can access direct education. Um, you had to work 12 months um, on payroll upon the completion of the course. So you couldn't leave, you know, before you got your grade and got reimbursed. Um, you can have no formal discipline. Um, and by formal discipline, we mean written discipline and it had to be manager approval. And we have 18 applications already approved to date because we're launching. We've already sent out the initial email blast to staff. Next slide. All right, this is just, again, just the barometer for what it takes to participate in the tuition reimbursement plan. Um, you know, it's a certificate, an associate's, bachelor's, master's degree program um, that are business or job related. 
we also opened it up to doctoral level um, employees as well. And I do, I do know that we had one applicant that's a doctoral level employee. Um, after a lot of feedback from our leaders and our leaders meeting last year, we also opened it up to associate's degree. Initially, we kind of overlooked that. We were looking at, you know, what is the standard in the industry, which is not usually, not every organization get, you know, lots for associate's degree, but we thought it was important, um, especially after we got feedback from our leaders. So we, we instituted an associate degree program amount of a thousand. And again, you just need a passing grade and then you can apply for reimbursement. Um, we also, um, you know, parlayed some other initiatives. We launched the mentorship program. And by we, I really mean Olay. That was really a hard lift for Arlene Gomez and her team. Um, and they did a DISC assessment. They developed individual professional goals. They managed relationships. They processed with the mentor. Um, many of the mentees also were um, in our growth space pilot. Um, and of course we had seven leaders from executive leadership and we have monthly mentor circle that are facilitated by the OLA department. Um, and the mentors were also given the opportunity to take the DISC assessment as well. And the next cohort uh, launches um, and it says quarter four, 2022, but I don't think we finalized the list just as of yet. So um, we should be having an update by our April meeting. And uh, Ms. Jones, will, will this be expanded? Uh, was that a pilot the first year of seven? And uh, did you have a waiting list? How, how, how are these mentors, mentees selected? Like people apply? Yes, yeah, so this year um, it's going out you know, for general interest. The first you know, initial program that you see here, seven, seven individuals um, was done as kind of a pilot. So there was already people that ELT had put forth within the division or people they interacted with, and they kind of were hand selected, to be honest. Um, some people did express an interest and were chosen, but many people already had people in mind that they thought would be, um, you know, uh, high achievers and were interested in personal growth. And so that's how they were picked. However, going forward, we're going to open it up to um, more participants and more levels of the organization. And it, I'm presuming that there is a like a DEI lens, equity lens um, aligned to it. So it's not just folks with more influence and more power in the, and more connections that get this, but really like who, how are we creating a workforce from, a, from that lens as well? No, so definitely. Because of course, Arlene co-chairs Hetty. So she obviously was, you know, thinks in both frameworks. And so, yes, she, she, we definitely have a diverse group. We definitely had um, even a diverse group of mentors. So, um, and that's always important that we keep that lens. And uh, just one question about, uh, is Olay an acronym or is it a company? Oh, Olay is our internal HR learning and development department. So it's organization okay. learning effectiveness. And effectiveness. Olay. Okay. Olay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ms. Jones, on, on, on in follow up to this discussion on DEI, at, at a future date, would would you be able to give us sort of the breakdown of those who, participants across leadership academy, career coaching, tuition reimbursement by, uh, you know, demographic data, so we can sort of get a feel for how it's being distributed? Yeah, I'm sure we can. Let me just. Um, Barrington, are we in on this because. 
you are the data queen here. Yep. Once we know um, who the participants are for each of the programs, you give us a list. Um, we can tell what their ethnicity and their, um, <clears throat> sorry, genders uh, information is. Um, we try not to release ind individual information, course, but we yeah. could give it on a summary basis. And yeah, so summary of this program, it would be as to Trustee Banerjee's point, you know, yeah. uh, there, there are multiple factors here, time in the organization, male, female, race, right. ethnicity. So just, just a broad overview would help us to understand this is this, this is aligned with our overarching theme of DEI uh, right. within our own internal programs. And that, that is voluntary information, Dr. Bouquet. So there might be, it may not be one for one, right? So just, just let you know. Yes, ma'am. Okay. No data sets, perfect. <laughs> one, one thing I know is that from the heady committee, uh, Arlene Gomez and Dr. Swift are kind of just compiling all the trainings that were offered over the year and who were the participants in the training. And of course, for, um, you know, ROI, it's not just who did the training. Ultimately, we have to see it did the practice change. But for now, at least who is participating in these trainings, who took it. So that roster is being created, I know, especially related to the DEI justice work. Definitely. I just wrote myself a note. So definitely can come back with those benchmarks for everyone to see. So um, just again, our OLA overview is um, they do their divisions and teams. They do meeting planning, team building, team dynamics. Um, there's individuals within the department that do executive and career coaching. We do have um, actually certified career coach. Um, Arlene Gomez is certified. Um, and individual career planning. Um, and usually that manifests itself in a request for an individual development plan. And I know that I've personally passed on several of those requests to Arlene and her team. So diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, this is a recap of OLAs, the trainings that have been done, the racial justice implicit bias trainings. They are encompassed within the Leadership Academy. There have been department leader meetings. There's e-learning modules. Um, the affinity groups, again, were launched. Um, and here you see the, the four groups and now with the onset of a new group that hopefully will be cemented by our next meeting. Um, all of these things to increase engagement and, and emphasize our allies. Um, all of the groups, um, you know, of course, encompass, encompass allies. Um, we also did the um, DB Bedford Emotional Intelligence Training throughout the system at all campuses. And it was really offered to departments that were requested it, but we had many people that went through the training and then word of mouth, we had, you know, different departments request the training. We've had, I don't know how many total, but I, I know we initially started with six and we're over a dozen at this point. So these are the kind of, I want to outline some of the opportunities for growth. Um, again, Leadership Academy 3.0 for all leaders, um, Leadership Development Program, new and refreshed skill labs, effective courses for leaders, um, career coaching, tuition reimbursement, mentorship program. Um, we're also going to be launching an intern pilot program um, along with other diversity and inclusion and belonging. 
um, opportunities for our staff. And again, Academy for Individual Contributors. This is really exciting because we do get a lot of staff who are trying to make that transition from an individual contributor to management. And without having access to our own leadership academy, it makes it very difficult. We have had people go through it um, if a leader has come forward, but now we're trying to make it more uniform and um, give equal access to all people that want to be able to participate in the program. Um, and again, internship program um, is also another program that was launched at least probably in 2020 um, and then the pandemic hit. So that is, she's re-engaging that internship program. And this really is internal to our internal employees, not external. We'll hear about external in the Health Path presentation. And again, um, electives, we are really pushing individual development plans for people to codify where they wanna see their career and their trajectory um, and presentation skills and much more as we get interest from leaders or from leader meetings, um, we develop whatever type of coursework or um, plan that any leader or department asks for. As you know, we did the net promoter score. I kind of um, skipped over it earlier in my presentation. Again, it was offered to all providers and staff. It was launched in October, 2022. We want to launch it again in March of 2023. Um, basically the net promoter score, as you know, asks how likely it is that you would recommend Alameda Health System as a care provider to a friend or colleague. And then how likely is it that you would recommend Alameda Health System as an employer to a friend or colleague. Quick question on those sure. questions. Uh, I think one of the, I think it was the culture of safety survey asked about um, Alameda Health System as a provider to family members. And I'm curious if that is something you purposely are not adding to these questions or want to add to the question because that was kind of a, alarming result that we got, you know, second percentile. I think we left out family on purpose because we actually took kind of the rubric from um, the benchmarks of industry standards for net promoter score. Um, we looked at several different companies that utilize net promoter score and they kind of use these can two questions. Now, of course you can spec, you know, you can switch them up if you'd like, but because we already addressed that question with family and I, I want to say that that's also been addressed in another um, survey, and maybe it was our Pulse survey that we did part of our um, departmental and um, facility um, program that we worked with Olay to identify issues and concerns. Um, but I mean, if you think that we should transition and include a, di a different denominator or a different classification under the second, um, we could add that, add family. So it's something I could discuss with Darshan and others and quality about whether, you know, this would be resonate with their yeah. survey. I appreciate your openness to consideration. Um, I was just curious why, and if it's being assessed in other places, then maybe we don't need to be redundant on this fact. Um, and also if the net promoter score has an industry standard, maybe we should stick to that. Uh, but if you guys take it up as a discussion piece, then and decide you wanna make an adjustment, so be it. Um, I look forward to seeing how that metric does change over time. 
Um, and maybe this is the place for it, maybe this isn't the place for it. But I'm very curious about how it changes over time. No, definitely. But I, I'm making a note to follow up with Darshan since we're about to launch the survey right now, the cultural safety survey. Next slide, please. Okay, so the, oh, I was just gonna say that again, we're launching the employee engagement survey, September, October, 2023. Um, I did want to just point out that um, we did get questions, a question or a question on the chat today asking when we were gonna have an employee satisfaction survey. So I thought it was quite interesting that somebody pointed out that they didn't think the culture of safety was as in depth as an as a employee satisfaction survey. So we are going to be doing that this year. The last time the um, survey was launched by AHS and HR was 2019. Mm -hmm. So it's been a few years. I do want to add something to this. When I talked to Darshan, um, in terms of the timing of both surveys, uh, that what I would like to do uh, with Darshan's help is to look at those six domains uh, in the cultural safety survey and see if we can kind of crosswalk to similar areas in the employee engagement survey because they will be like almost six months apart uh, to see if there are you know any any differences in terms of responses to those similar or like uh, questions. Um, Lorna, how do these employee engagement surveys like time with the self-evaluation and the leader evaluations? Because sometimes when like either the C-suite or other leader evaluations, annual evaluations are happening, it really helps to have the employee engagement before uh, that happens. So like, is it being timed in a way that the results and reports of these can inform some of the um, other uh, yes. performance evaluations? So there's a segment of our population that this will kind of coalesce around the same time as their evaluations. And those are going to be for the leaders, right? Because they have a focal point review, which is always in the fall. Um, and so this, this will coalesce in the same time frame, right? September. Um, if we launch it in September, it would be in the same time frame. However, most of our union contract employees, and I'll ask Karen to chime in if I'm wrong, but they they have a they have a data hire annual review that goes based on their date of hire. Correct, Karen? Yeah, they um they they're based, they get months, the review is done monthly. So you were hired anytime in January, you get a performance review at the end of January <clears throat> and February's are due in February. So the unionized employees are all monthly, you know, launched each month. The one thing about the cohort that's um, unrepresented, uh, their reviews are due September 1st. So we may, we wouldn't have the results of an employee engagement survey launched in September in time for leader reviews uh, based on the timeline we're looking at right now. If we launch in September, uh, you know, we won't get our scores back till sometime in October and the reviews were already due in September. Yeah. And I think part of the issue may be that people are gone in August. So to launch them early. Um... And I'm presuming that uh, for, so apart from the uh, uh, executive leadership team, which is based on performance-based, you know, kind of 
some of their metrics and um, incentives. Uh, for the others, there are none of that. Like, how would you, like, would, I'm just thinking about how, like, something has to come before the other one in terms of, like, cadence. So uh, it, this doesn't impact that, uh, that people are going to be doing their self, uh, leaders are going to be doing their self-evaluation before um, these employment uh, scores are reported uh, are reported the report is out that is accurate trustee Banerjee and part of that is um, some changes that were made to HR and again I'll ask my team to chime in since I'm relatively new coming back to AHS in the last two years but um, we used to have a system internally where we could cascade goals and we no longer have that capability so um, I don't know if you have something specific you can speak to uh, Karen or Lynn but um, the selfie vows, you know, really um, kind of encapsulate like where they want to see themselves as far as development, career development, educational opportunities, whatever it may be for most employees. But it doesn't go, it doesn't, it doesn't track with our um, with our system goals, right? No, they're they're separate modules, right? Yeah. Karen, uh, the performance. Yeah. Um, uh, module uh, speaks to the per person's. Um, um, I guess the behavioral aspects of the job and you know it can't it doesn't really include goals per se. There's a goal module though that we've used multiple years before um, which we can put in goals we can cascade them to leaders um, and I believe that we'll probably be using that in the next couple months I'm not sure we're looking at that process again um, but the performance review has been separated from the goal management process and, and there is a place in the performance review to put a goal for an employee, like I want you to take more classes or I want you to do this. But the organizational goals and the departmental goals would go into the goal plans and, and we're working through that process to see if that's something we're going to launch. But we do have the system available. I see. I see. I think I was assuming that director level and up also have like not just self-evaluation but to have if you're a chair or a chief or you're a director level person that you have like not a, a 360 where your employees your your team all there's some mm. input from the bi-directional like you know i mean every manager is doing the evaluation for um there's that there's so that kind of feedback doesn't exist well, well it does but it's in the ap i'm sorry lynn did you Right. Yeah, I think Karen has history on this. I think a lot of work was done prior to my coming on board around 360. And uh, it got as far as the C-suite and then it, it completely died there with the prior administration. There, It's a lot of work. So in order to launch a 363 program, which I've done in the private sector, you have to go make sure that everybody goes through training uh, so they know how to take the feedback. Um, the instrument that you use, uh, all of that, that, that would be a heavy lift. And maybe that's something we can do in the future. Uh, but I know that, Karen, can you speak to the attempts here made at Alabama? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a several, it was a couple of years ago and we do have the tool, we would have to rebuild it, but we did do um, 360 reviews for the executive leadership uh, team and the um, CEO. And um, what you do, and I think you already all know, but you invite people to in your you know world to 
evaluate you. And then the review isn't done until all the people that you have requested to evaluate you participate, or you say, okay, we're stopping and we're just going to take what we have. And so we had some problems with people uh, finishing the reviews. Um, and I would think that we would probably stumble with that going forward as well without a lot of training uh, because we're having problems just getting people to complete the regular performance reviews, right? And there's not a whole lot of other people involved. I just have to do my review for my employees. So there's two of us involved and we have a lot of performance reviews that aren't completed. So now if if that performance review involved six people, like, oh dear Lord, how do we get all of everybody to, to get them completed and get them done? So I think that we'd have to have some kind of big push uh, to to build, well, we'd have to build it, but then we'd have to push and get all six of those people uh, to answer the performance review and give their information. And then, as Lynn said, there's a whole coaching process of providing that feedback to the, the employee or the leader, um, it, because a lot of it is masks. It doesn't say that Lauren has said this about you. It said, oh, this was said, or this is a theme we're seeing. So presenting the 360 review to that director needs to be done by somebody. And I think Arlene helped present some of the information when we did it with the executive leadership team. And the, the it's not the same team that we have right now. This was done probably in 2019. So it was sort of a different group of executives um, that participated. I mean, there's some still employed that that did that but the bigger group isn't here anymore mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. i think the training is going to going to be key if you if we decide to roll out a 360 degree program let's say director level and on up without that i can tell you from experience that when people get into those feedback sessions uh and they get their uh packets um, I know that I had a vendor actually do the aggregates uh for a, a company I worked for and um, we had to have someone in the um, uh, in the in the meeting when people got their packets, and I actually saw people break down and cry that couldn't handle it. So that's why that that training is absolutely um, critical if we're going to be rolling that out. But to Karen's point, uh, we're not a very compliant organization when it comes to performance management. Uh, we're always chasing people to try to get get it done. Uh, so that's the other thing that we grapple with. The one last thing I will say on this topic, and I can we can present this in April, we, we did think about presenting it to you today, is we do have the metrics that we're using to gauge performance, and we're tracking them currently under the different dashboards, right? Some of it's QIP, some of it's ours. But we do have that capability, Trustee Banerjee. We just don't have the ability to electronically facilitate cascading goals right at this time because it was turned off. And so there is some process and interaction we have to work with um, IS to be able to um, get that capability back. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I mean, do it once, do it right. Not like launch anything without the right kind of like cultivating the conditions and the training and the readiness and all right. I, I hear that, I guess, through all of these different streams and also the culture of safety, mm-hmm. uh, team-wise, one focuses on some of those cultural account, um, aspects of performance. Right. I, I think that if we do anything in terms of, you know, like an incentive plan or performance goals, uh, you know, we do have a, a, an assemblance of what that program could look like or going to be costing it out and see if we can tweak it. But I think that for um, for the size of, uh, 
of this organization, I know in the private sector, what's been done is that if you don't do your performance evaluations, guess what? It's really going to hit uh, your, um, your award uh, and maybe it will be reduced. Uh, so sometimes that works uh, and it, it incentivizes people to get it done. You have one or two people that don't get it, uh, that spreads like wildfire and then people are more compliant. Uh, but one thing I don't want to uh, uh, turn HRIS into or HR is the performance evaluation police, uh, because that becomes very, I think, uh, problematic in the long run to actually monitor that and uh, to get people uh, to do their performance evaluations. It's much better, I think, if you have some kind of a um, requirement that it, that it gets done and something a little bit punitive that it could reduce uh, their award uh, in the end and also have the leadership uh, of that division really push uh, their folks to get, get those performance evaluations done and also drive uh, the strategic plan in terms of those pillars, right? Sustainability, um, uh, the community one uh, position and, and staff experience and the quality measures, I think I think that could work. You know, I I hear a lot of over the course of the years, I've heard a lot of uh, attempts to get participation and buy-in. And I think if the leaders who have the potential to get these, you know, awards at the end of the year are not participating in things that are basic uh, parts of their job, you know, supervising with documentation their staff. Um, how can we expect staff to engage in pieces of their jobs? So yeah. well, these, these information gathering moments that are very important and crucial to, to assessing the performance of the organization. Uh -huh. um, and I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, when you have the strategic plan, if you take a quality indicator, like let's say preventing falls in mid-search, uh, then I know what uh, I did in another health system working with um, the leaders of, of that particular system is to have a dashboard in each of those departments where actually employees could see it. You know, we had this many falls in, in our department and we want to get to this goal here and actually track it. Uh, and we did get some traction in doing that because it makes people a part of of that um, goal and objective that you're trying to push out, right? Yeah, and I know we had this uh, innovative approach to create a, not just a, a binary, but a tertiary leadership structure mm -hmm. with CAOs at each uh, core site. This feels like a perfect project for our CAOs to take on. Mm -hmm. I agree. Any more questions? Okay, well, I'm gonna go ahead and move on to um, our volunteer services. I thought this would be good information for all of you to know. Next slide, please. So um, in last year, we had 196 individual volunteers um, record hours with AHS. And overall, they did over 20,000 hours and that was equivalent to over nine FTEs. And that was all free labor to AHS that we 
uh, reap the benefit from. Um, and the value, as you can see, was over 588,000. And then you can see also the hours per campus. By and large, they've all been at Highland, um, also because we're a trauma center. I think we attract a different level uh, and a different um, you know, volunteer base, um, being that it's a trauma center and a teaching hospital. Any questions? I do. I know that uh, Heal Path and Mentoring in Medicine are two programs that I just happen to be exposed to. Um, and I know Mentoring in Medicine is based at Highland and has been for a long time. Are there other uh, position leaders or leaders of other type job classifications that work at different sites that are encouraging members of the community to come in and you know, it's hard to establish a program, but since we do have this foundation, are there other programs that are targeting clinic sites and targeting, I know it's hard to get in psych, but you know, all the different areas. You know, I don't, that's a great question. Um, I can definitely go back to Jason and ask him if that is um, something that he's cultivating out in the community, like community partners. Um, I do know that our hands are quite full with the level of um, volunteers we have now, but we definitely probably could use more volunteers at our, some of our other facilities at San Leandro and at Alameda. So that's definitely something I can come back to uh, the board of trustees with. And and I wonder, you know, not if like our ambulatory team is thinking about like how there might be some for you know. Um, managing is hard. They are short staff and they see a lot of attrition from the uh, primary care team. But they, I, I feel like as we, as our obligation to see more patients and have more interface over there that besides the, you know, other kinds of community health workers, navigators and things, volunteers might also be needed for us to meet our goals. Definitely, it's something we can look at. As you can see, Newark Wellness has had the most hours um, of the ambulatory settings. Ms. Jones, may I ask a small favor? Um, sure. Can you just introduce Jason Picorni? Uh, Jason's been doing it for years. And uh, I know as a clinician here, you, uh, there's almost not a day that goes by where you don't interact with a volunteer. And it's really... It gives a lot of juice to this organization, our volunteer program. I've always been a big fan of what uh, what is done with her. So uh, if you don't mind, a small little shout out to Jason. I think he's in the room. He is in the room. So I don't know if Jason is on Zoom or on his phone. Um, Jason, if you are able to go on camera to say. Yo. To yeah. Introduce people to you. <laughs> oh. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. I appreciate that. Oh, there you go. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. So. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I wanted to mention uh, one thing. I know there was a question about um, sort of distribution of the different campuses. Um, one of the things that we've, you know, COVID was really devastating for us. Um, Pre-COVID, we had a significant amount of um, non-patient uh, care seeking uh, volunteers. So we had more community members just looking for, um, 
you know, to give back to the community, folks that are just want to support our system and our mission. Um, now, um, we, and if you look at the numbers, it's mostly pre-med and pre-nursing students, essentially. And honestly, Highland is the biggest draw. Um, it's, we are, like Lorna said, a level one trauma center. We are a teaching institution. We're just the busiest, most, um, there's a lot of going on here. And so, um, you know, we, we try our best to kind of reach out. We have a lot of advertising out there. Um, but traditionally, you know, Highland, um, you know, is, is sort of uh, the biggest draw for, for students. Uh, we're also looking, uh, we, we started a, a medical type program at San Leandro Hospital. And that's been really successful in med med surge and and the um, uh, emergency department. Uh, We're also starting uh, a similar program at Alameda in the hopes to sort of shift some of those volunteers at those other sites. So, Jason, how long have you been here doing this? Oh goodness, that's uh, (laughs) well, I'm. Yeah, so so I've been at Alameda Health System for over 20 years, um, but I've worked in many different positions and many different um, campuses. Um, I've been doing volunteer services, I would say, over 12 years. Yeah, that's yeah. So, appreciation, man. Thank you, appreciate it. Yeah, it's very rewarding. Um, we most of our volunteers, believe it or not, they actually do go on and work in the healthcare field. I'm very proud of that. And as you'll see in another slide, over 50 volunteer or former volunteers are current employees with us in every type of position that you can imagine here within Alameda Health System. So something I, you know, it's a, yeah, uh, very rewarding. Jason, thank you so much for your service. I'm, I'm looking at the slide here and it has uh, about 52% pre-medicine and then 25% pre-nursing, 11% other. Um, I don't know if you could share a little bit about what that other is. And then there's a 12% that's in purple that uh, doesn't list what yeah, that is. Yeah, and I apologize. I think there might've been a transfer issue uh, with that. So so um, yeah, the bulk of our volunteers, they are you know in the pre-med declared category um, followed by you know pre-nursing. The 11% is sort of, um, you know, miscellaneous. It could be, you know, here to support the community. It could be, um, you know, a lot of different, um, you know, interests. The purple is just a pre-health, but either miscellaneous or undecided. So it could be like a rad tech program. It could be, you know, LVN or it could be, um, you know, many, um, you know, respiratory therapy, just, you know, sort of miscellaneous or just general pre-health undecided. Got it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Jason, for coming on camera and introducing yourself. We're very pleased for your work. Uh, you know, trivia question, how many of those 50 have you touched personally? Uh, but you don't have to answer that. I think this is really amazing. And I think as we think about recruitment from within Alameda County, recruitment and retention and you know people's dedication to the system, which we know is part of the reason that our staff come here and stay. I think this volunteer pipeline is also very beneficial um, for building morale and loyalty. Absolutely. And I believe that um, if you look at the numbers, you know, folks that 
that were volunteers that want to work here, you know, they they understand they are here for the mission, very mission driven. And so um, I think the retention rate you'll see, you know, it's a, it's a lot higher. I mean, we haven't really done the numbers, but, um, you know, I certainly those that, that uh, you know, work here um, after having some experience as a volunteer, you know, are, are very, you know, dedicated. All right, next slide, please. And so I'm gonna let you do this, Jason, since you are the expert. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, goodness gracious. Um, yeah, so, um, golly. Um, so the percentage of students really, um, it, it's really, you know, the, the core of our volunteer program is essentially students, undergrad, looking to volunteer to get experience to eventually get into medical school or nursing program. Simple as that. Um, most of our volunteers, they do, um, as you see, uh, tend to, to skew younger, uh, especially after, you know, the, you know, COVID, um, you know, pre-COVID, we had a significant amount of volunteers that were here for many years, a part of our auxiliaries. Um, but um, yeah, as you see now, 71% are you know between 18 and 24, um, and then it really kind of splinters out after that. Next slide, please. Um, yep. One of the things that I'm, I'm also super proud about is that we have a very diverse volunteer population. Um, 31 languages uh, spoken amongst our volunteer population. Um, and so, and in addition to that, 19% uh, speak three or more languages, um, believe it or not. So there's only 23% that only speak English. And those are some of the, those are actually the languages listed there um, that are spoken uh, by our volunteers. And, and you know, our, those numbers, uh, you know, uh, fluctuate. I mean, we've had a where um, at one point, I think there were 45 languages that volunteers spoke. So. And then, um, yeah, just a few fun facts. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, between uh, 2020, 2022, 35 volunteers were accepted to schools for healthcare related careers, including nursing school, medical school, PA schools, uh, physical therapy and pharmacy schools. Um, and then, um, yeah, there are currently 53 former volunteers employed by AHS across the uh, six different sites, including uh, nurses, chaplains, physicians, clerks, ED technicians, uh, physician assistants, uh, radiology techs, lactation consultants, uh, CNAs, and more. And then lastly, um, there are currently uh, five former volunteers um, that are completing their medical school residencies at Highland Hospital, uh, three in internal medicine, one in the ED, and one in surgery. So I thought those were kind of cool, fun facts. That's a heck of a retention fact. <laughs> Right. Thank you. Thank you, Jason.
chair. Um, I, I don't have the agenda open. Um, is that is that the end of our? We have one more presentation from yeah, Health. Think, yeah, from Health Path. I think we have one more presentation from Health Path. Yes. So we will share our screen here for just a moment. Okay. Great. Good evening, everyone. My name is Joyla James. I'm the manager of operations for HealthPath. Hey. Good evening. And my colleague Joseph is on here somewhere. Sorry about that. I was having trouble with my uh, microphone. So my name is Joseph Peters. I'm the program manager for HealthPath. Great, so HealthPath has been here since 2016. Um, actually, the HEAL program, one of our home-based programs with HealthPath, predates that 2016 date by many years. HEAL has been serving eighth grade students since 1991 at Highland Hospital. Um, but in general, HealthPath, through internships, volunteer opportunities, and other work-based learning experiences for youth and young adults from middle school through adulthood, we want to give them an opportunity to gain firsthand knowledge about healthcare careers, whether that's through shadowing, through our work in the simulation center, um, giving them that opportunity to see the day-to-day -day life of a health professional so that they're making informed decisions about their career path. And sorry about that, Joe, I'll jump in, jump in here. So each year we serve uh, over 500 youth from Alameda County. Uh, we like to serve uh, young people who uh, are underrepresented in healthcare, but specifically underrepresented here at Alameda Health Systems. Uh, and Health Path promotes academic excellence and skills for life and career success uh, as we help youth give back to their community. Our young people have the opportunity to shadow health professionals here at Highland Hospital and Alameda Hospital and all of our uh, various hospitals. So why we do it, um, I think, you know, one of the most contributing factors to an individual's health is um, their access to a good paying job, right? And we want our young people to be exposed to these careers in healthcare where they otherwise may not be exposed to them. Many of the young people who participate in our program are newcomers or they don't come from families that have medical professionals uh, in them. And so literally this access to healthcare professionals is their first access outside of watching Grey's Anatomy or looking at YouTube videos. I'd update that to TikTok since that's now the new trend. True. Or TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a continuum of programs within AHS. Uh, the main program that I think most people who work here often hear about is the Health Excellence and Academic Leadership Program, the HEAL program. Uh, that is the bulk of our high school internship program, or that is all of our high school internship programs. We have in-school programming and after-school programming. But we also have Faces for the Future, which uh, does their internships at Alameda Hospital. We have the On-Ramp to Health Careers Internship, which is our partnership with uh, uh, Peralta Colleges. 
And uh, it's an opportunity for college students, students who are in post-secondary to have the same kind of exposure to health careers, but more on an internship, internship project-based experience, uh, internship experience. Uh, we also have our very competitive Health Path Summer College Internship, which is similar to the on-ramp internship, but the Health Path Summer College Internship exposes, uh, actually is a little bit more competitive than our on-ramp internship in which we are primarily working with, with Peralta College student, students. Our Health Path Summer College Internship is for mostly universities, UC, CSU students as well. So it makes it just a little bit more competitive. We have our CNA to highway, uh, highway to Work program, our Highway to ED Tech program, and then finally our, well, actually we have our Highway to ED Tech program in there twice, but uh, finally our Highway to ED Tech program. And this is our goal to move from middle school career exposure to uh, work-based learning to actually moving young people into careers here at Alameda Health System. Yeah, and just to add to that, the CNA Highway to Work program and the ED Tech program, it's really about focusing on out-of-school youth or youth in that kind of like 13th year of high school who are neither in college um, or working and they might not have plans on going to college and it's really helping them find that next step of what they want to do. And so this past uh, in summer of 2022, we did our first uh, CNA and ED Tech program. With CNA, we partnered with the Alameda um, College of Alameda and OUSD where we had a group of 14 uh, students who had just graduated high school who are unsure of what their next step were, was, um, and they completed the program, did their clinical rotations uh, with AHS, and then are, they have been currently currently signed up to take their CNA exam, their certification exam. I'm not exactly sure what you call it, um, but so the ED Tech and the CNA program really is to catch those students who may not go to college, um, who want employment, and this is something that can get them and help them, frankly, make money sooner because maybe they're supporting themselves or their, their families, or maybe sometimes college is not the best option for some people. So we wanted to catch that group of students as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so specifically for the HEAL internship program, so we have served 1,550 Alameda County youth um, between 2015 and 2022. Um, and that's just in the HEAL program. That doesn't include the other programs that we partner with and um, the light touches that we do when we do simulation days and career exploration visits for um, OUSD and San Leandro Unified School Districts. In addition, who we serve, 68% uh, of our students that we serve are female, 31% male, um, and then we have 0.5 for transgender and non-binary. Part of that is because we just started collecting data to break out the transgender and non-binary. Um, and then with the 68% female, that's actually reflective of the breakdown of how many students within Oakland Unified School District, how many um, the male and female breakdown of who participate in internships. Unfortunately, there's um, a low number of young men and specifically young men of color participating in internships. We do have a high school and middle school young men of color 
cohort that we do that's specifically to address the fact that um, those numbers were low. Uh, this is what we serve now, but in the past, the male representation, the young men of color representation was much lower. And we like to say that through the early interventions that we do with eighth grade students um, in eighth grade boys of color, and then later in high school, focusing on ninth and 10th grade, that that has helped to increase our young male of color representation in the program. And then this is just a breakdown uh, by race and ethnicity of who we serve. Um, but I'll take you to the next slide where we show a comparison here of our HS patient population, HS workforce diversity and comparison to heal participant population. And as you can see, the AHS, the ratio for the AHS patient population and heal participation population is really similar. Um, and I mean, the data is what it is. Um, we, of course, are always looking to improve um, or serve more students who we find from particular ethnic groups who we find uh, we get lesser applicants. Um, but also, this is a reflection of the makeup of OUSD because, again, for HEAL, most of our students come from the Oakland Unified School District. In addition to who we serve, so approximately 78% of HEAL students are low income, so they're eligible for the National School Lunch Program, which is why for all of our out of, all of our out of school internships, students are paid a stipend. We do recognize that we are competing against jobs and these are students in need. And so we never want to provide programming where we do not pay them. The only exception is if they are getting class and school credit for the internship, they do not get paid. And that's something that the schools have determined. And so to respect the ask of the schools. Uh, so if they're here during school hours, they do not get paid, but any outside school hours internship programs, students are paid. Um, and then in surveying our students, we found that 21% of our students are the, going to be the first in their family to graduate from high school, 27 first in their family to graduate college, and 29% first, um, or attend college, my, my apologies, um, and 29% first in their family to graduate from college. And then looking at some of our results, just at a glance, I mean, we survey every student that participates in our program. 93% of them plan to pursue a career in healthcare. 84% have gained a clear career path from their participation in the HEAL program. 92% uh, are more motivated to pursue education seriously. And 81% plan to work with low-income communities similar to those served by AHS. And I want to say that's the one that I think we are most proud of. I mean, through their experience at Alameda Health System, not only do they identify a health career that they want to pursue in an education pathway, but they also kind of gleam a responsibility to their community and a connectedness to their community that they didn't have prior. Yeah, and that's not only done through the shadowing. So we have three components to our internship program. So there's a simulation piece where they're gaining hands-on experiences and they're interfacing um, with health professionals from within AHS who volunteer their time for simulation. We have the shadowing piece, which is the big draw for students, but there is a classroom component. So we are going over topics that are current in healthcare, especially um, the through line for all of our curriculum is social determinants social. of health. 
and that's something that we constantly address regardless of what curriculum topic we're covering we want to make sure that students are getting a base of um, health literacy and health equity uh, because they're usually students from the backgrounds of the patient same patient population these are students many of whom were born at highland hospital so uh, we want to make sure that we're providing that information and providing that and helping to prepare them um, as they go into healthcare, so that they know what they're going to be met with um, and they have the ability to make you know make changes in healthcare um, themselves so as far as program expansion, we are doing some great things currently and uh, moving on to some new things as well. So uh, we already mentioned we have our Young Men of Color uh, internship, and that is to bring greater exposure to young men of color. Uh, as you see, that is kind of a deficit in our population. And so we want to increase those numbers. And the intentionality behind that is working with young men of color in the eighth grade uh, thereby their exposure in the eighth grade will kind of uh, eliminate that fear of uh, internship participation and they'll be more ready for um, internships once they move on to high school. Uh, Joyla, I'll let you talk about the summer internship. Yeah, so the summer internship uh, really is focusing on getting students not only a more realistic experience of healthcare, but seeing what's beyond the clinical rotations. And so oftentimes uh, students are in non-clinical areas where they get to see the behind the scenes of how hospitals run, how hospital systems are. Um, and we're proud to say that the, this past summer we had 29 interns and 10 interns were 10 interns were extended, their internships were extended to um, ex one extended semi-permanently and another two were hired. And so ultimately Health Path, our goal is to become a pipeline. And so we want to go from eighth grade through employment to AHS. We do have, uh, we're currently trying to collect data on our alumni. We do have a handful of students working at AHS, whether it's an MA or on the administrative side or a hygienist or a rad tech. Um, so the goal is really to give the college students who their next step is employment that exposure um, and awareness. And then one of our acknowledgements from facilitating our summer college internship was that we weren't seeing we weren't really identifying the populations that we really wanted to have in the internship. Now we were getting people from the community, but a lot of them were from UCs. We even had candidates applying from Harvard and UPenn from all over the country. Uh, but we really wanted to work with people from Alameda County who went to Peralta colleges first and maybe are on their way to transitioning to a four-year college. So the on-ramp health uh, careers community college internship serves as an access point for those community college students to kind of gain that exposure, make their resumes a little bit more competitive so that when they apply for the summer internship, they have something to pull from. Um, the on-ramp health careers community college internship is currently a play right now. We are seeking more um, slots for students uh, to do their clinical rotations, their placements. We are working with 18 students from Berkeley Community College, Merritt College, and Chabot College. And uh, we've been working with them for the first semester, which was uh, fully didactic kind of professional development, preparing them for their work in, in the clinics. And that ends this Friday. And then following uh, until May, they'll be in departments where they'll be working on specific projects. 
Yeah, and the Highway to ED Tech um, and the CNA Highway to Work program, like I mentioned earlier, is really catching catching that 13th year student, those students who are not quite either ready for college or not interested in college, but want to work in healthcare. And so fast tracking them into the healthcare field by doing um, the CNA uh, preparation, supporting them, and both program students are paid. And then upcoming in development, I'll let Joseph talk about our TAE program. Yeah, so our TAE program, we are working in collaboration with Rubicon uh, Roots Community Clinic and, um, and of course, HealthPath, uh, that kind of triad collaboration. We're working with transition age youth. These age youth, these uh, transition age youth are uh, usually young people who are coming from places like Covenant House um, and are seeking exposure to careers in healthcare and in other various areas. Uh, we'll be facilitating a 12-week internship for hopefully 10 youth in that program. Uh, we just got funded through the Stupski Foundation, and so we are just in the beginning of kind of getting that program off the ground. And Joyla, I'll let you talk. Oh, and the community health workers. I'll talk about that because that's <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, and so, and I'm also working, uh, we are also working, but I'm I'm taking the lead on working with um, uh, Lily McRae on the CHW apprenticeship kind of work group. We are just in the beginning of that, but right now exploring ways to create an apprenticeship program for community health workers here at AHS. Great. So we're, this is our contact information. So if you have any questions or concerns, you can ask questions now. Or if you have any questions that you don't maybe want to ask out in the public forum, please feel free to email us. Um, we're happy to answer questions and provide any information that you may need. And I just want to say one more thing because I was having uh, technical difficulties earlier, but uh, I also want to add that, you know, a lot of the volunteers have matriculated through our program. Uh, we are very intentional about ensuring that people from volunteer programs, people from internal uh, internships that are outside of Health Path have advantages for participating in our internships if they do apply. And, you know, I, we're we're really excited about kind of unifying all of the various internship groups and programs that exist at AHS and figuring out how we can, um, you know, just create a single process. And so that's one way that we focus on making sure that volunteers to anybody who has participated in internship at AHS has an advantage in uh, um, applying for our programs. And that's all. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say thank you both very much. That was an excellent presentation, and it gave me um, a, a good idea of what Health Path does. When you talk about Health Path, or somebody says that to me, I think of internships for medicine or internships for nursing, or you know, I mean, those type of programs bringing our youth in. And it looks like you're bringing youth in to do or. Uh, all types of volunteer uh, services and internship programs. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, that, I, I, can't say, I can't say enough about being able to expose our young folks to the healthcare system because oftentimes when you talk to them, they think of doctors and nurses. They don't think about the program staff or radiology or lab or reception or you know they don't think about billing they don't think about any of those type of services which all make our system run so thank you for for what you do it's awesome thank trustee you. Banerjee I think I had I heard you 
Yeah, I, I was going to say Joyland Joseph. I mean, uh, as phenomenal as our HR uh, team is, when there's health path on the uh, on the agenda, this is really sometimes a highlight for uh, just hearing how our organization is partnering uh, on this. And I was part, I think, of the board when we got that endowment from Atlantic Philanthropy, when that happened, and just to every time to see how much it has grown and how richly uh, this is, uh, uh, this initiative is so embedded. I know that when I speak uh, at my community of San Leandro, uh, for our SLUSD school, which has, I think, about 65% on um, uh, subsidized lunch uh, program and about 30% are multilingual learners. I keep hearing about, is, that, is there any way this can happen uh, with the San Leandro School District as well? And I know that, that uh, the hope is that to keep uh, looking for funding that this can this can be expanded because this is just absolutely amazing and we do need that workforce. So uh, thank you again for the amazing uh, program and work you all do. Thank you. And I just like thank to you. add too that a lot of what we do is because of the volunteers within AHS. They volunteer their time to speak yeah. with the students, to do simulation, to allow students to shadow them. And so it's been a really, really meaningful experience um, mentoring students as well. And so we absolutely could not do that without all of the wonderful volunteers at AHS. And I also wanted to add as well that we are in the process of reconciling how many of our graduates are actually working at AHS. In fact, some of the students in the pictures uh, that we use are actually employees at AHS right now. The hardest part of any type of uh, nonprofit organization is uh, surveying and trying to figure out what your young people are doing. And so that's what we're working on right now. Thank Great. you. And uh, one more, one more, just one more thing. Mm -hmm, sure. So many, uh, but that the college internship, I am so, so thrilled to you how you are prioritizing that because this is just, I think this month or last month, there was an uh, article in the journal of the AMA's journal of the ethics about how sometimes, you know, um, a lot of elite college folks use uh, hospital systems to to do their trainings and as good as that is uh, we do then perpetrate a set two-tier level of uh, care where some of the more uh, you know well-resourced hospitals uh, are are not so making sure that if when we open our doors we are really doing this for those underrepresented groups that we really really need to build up and not uh, you know, our CA from, from our community colleges or from CSUs. Um, so thank you for making, having that, you know, lens on it. And again, both the health path and our volunteer programs are just like such marquee for our organization. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So I don't see um, any hands raised. So we're going to go to trustee comments. Trustees, do you have any uh, comments that you'd like to make before we close our meeting out. Major gratitude to uh, Joyla and Joseph for the work you do with Heal Path. It's really a beautiful program, and I'm so excited for your work and your your concerted effort to make sure that all ethnicities are, you know, that we have representation, whatever that looks like, whether it's gender, <clears throat> identity, or 
you know, orientation or people of color. I appreciate your diligence. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Anyone you. else? I'll say something. Uh, as we all know, we approved a strategic plan last year. One of our four pillars is community connection. And I can't think of uh, the volunteer program or the health path program, two greater representatives of the spirit of that pillar of community connection, engaging youth uh, of, of Alameda County into this. I think it's I think it's a great thing to do. And let's keep it on as one of the uh, marquee uh, parts of our uh, of that community connection pillar. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Paquette. Um, any of our leadership team or um, anyone else have any comments before we close out for the evening? One final comment, and that is before Trustee Blue abandoned us to work at the White House, she was thinking about having these meetings more than once quarterly uh, because the discussion is always so robust and the information is so vital. Um, just wanted to throw that out there for you, Trustee Chapman, as a something to consider. Duly noted. Anyone else? All right, with that, I, I, I will thank you guys for getting on the call. Thank you for staying on our HR committee. Um, I hope you learned something tonight. I definitely did. And with that, you all have a good evening and have a good rest of your week. And hopefully we'll... Uh, get rid of some of this, get a little bit of sunshine before we get the rain again. So have a good evening. Take care. Thanks. Thank you all.